KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. We came across a new concept here at the podcast that we found intriguing. It is called holistic forecasting. It is something that Dr. Guntram Werther, professor of marketing and supply chain management at Temple University's Fox School of Business specializes in. So we caught up with him to talk about what holistic forecasting is, how it works, and and what it can tell us. This is a really interesting conversation. Check it out. So let's start at the baseline. Explain to me what is holistic forecasting. Uh, The simplest way to explain it would be you naturally do it uh, when you drive down the highway. You're not only looking at the speedometer or the fuel gauge, or you're not only looking a mile down the road. You're constantly integrating and rejudging information as it arises uh, to make uh, your judgments. Okay, And you you have at the same time a long-term plan you want to get from point A to point B but you also have these immediate uh, considerations, the traffic around you, changes in the environment, all of that. So the main point I want to make is holistic thinking is entirely natural to humans. I mean, uh, you know, if you walk down the street or uh, you know, get to work or do anything you do, you're doing holistic forecasting. The, the issue is bringing that kind of thinking into uh, formal analysis, uh, formal thinking. Uh, which I think you'll agree, we've spent an awful lot of time specializing and subspecializing uh, people in the, in the university and also in practice. So we've kind of taught ourselves to get away from that. I never bought that. And so I've been doing holistic forecasting now going on probably 35 years. Explain to me how holistic forecasting differs from other methods. If you look at a math model, for an example, they have to decide which variables are important and what they measure, and they put them into the model. And then they test the model against reality. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's horrible, and sometimes it's in between. The difference with holistic forecasting is we don't prejudge variables. We have some idea of the things that we think are relevant to the question that we're trying to answer. Okay, look, what's the future of globalization? Or you know, what's gonna happen in the European Union? Things like that. We have some idea of what's relevant, but when other things arise in, in the data set, in other words, in the world, we constantly fold them in. And so the, the analogy I use is like layering up an onion. You start with a little bit of information and you just keep layering it up and it gets broader and deeper as you move along. Okay. And, and, and so I would say the main difference in holistic forecasting, just like in life, when you're driving down the road or walking down the street is you're constantly integrating information as it arises and you don't prejudge it. Okay. You just say, Oh, this happened. You know, I'm walking down the road or I'm driving down the road and a dog ran in my way. I'm going to react to that. Okay, that dog is not relevant, whereas probably you didn't think about that as you started your trip. Uh, and there's things I'm going to not think about when I think about will globalization be successful uh, that somebody else isn't going to put into a math model because it doesn't make that much sense. But there it is, pops up, and I'm not, and I, have to, I have to deal with it now. I have to integrate that into my thinking and constantly rejudge and re- reanalyze as I move along. Uh, that builds up over time so that you get a better and better picture of how whatever you're interested in fits into the uh, changing or evolving world. Is, is that sensible to you? That it you is. Could... It is. And where would you say in what areas is holistic forecasting the most useful? I work on large events or what we call large scale, large impact rare events uh, because of the, those are the most commonly missed by people. Uh, so that's my main area of, of, of use. But one of the contracts I have is with the Society of Actuaries. 
and they're interested in, you know, how do you set insurance rates? What's the risk of this or that event happening so they can set insurance rates? Uh, you, you see it in banking. I mean, uh, you know, right now the banking industry is, is a little bit concerned about political risk because they don't know how elections are going to turn out, not just in this country, but a whole bunch of other countries, uh, what the impact is on COVID uh, on those societies in the near and long term. And so that goes into financial institutions. I, I would argue that there's almost not an institution that isn't impacted. Nate Silver, who's a good forecaster, he's missed a few things, but he's a great guy, in my opinion, uh, one of the better ones. And he, he, he pointed out that, you know, in, in well-understood systems like baseball, uh, those kind of analytics are actually better than uh, you know, expert judgment. In other areas, the reverse is true. Uh, so I can't really think of a major area of human endeavor where holistic forecasting doesn't have something to say. I am not saying that we shouldn't use models or algorithms or AI or any other system that gives you insight. That's just more grist for my mill. I'll fold those results in with everything else. What would you say are the keys to a good holistic forecast or to having the most the most accurate you can? Well, the, the, the first point uh, that people have made, uh, and this goes back to Aristotle, is you have to be older. And, and that has nothing to do with IQ. It has to do with having enough experience of how the world works to be able to do the kinds of things you need to do to do holistic forecasting. And we've seen that in a number of other books, Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. He has a nice little vignette about uh, master chess players. You know, it's, it's experiential, okay? But the second part in most areas is being multidisciplinary. My background is in biology with math, chemistry, double minors. And then I went and got a degree in comparative political systems. And I've always been reading about comparative religions, histories, philosophies. Yeah, I was just interested in all kinds of stuff that didn't make any sense to me when I was younger. And so what we saw both in the domestic community and the military intelligence community is the good forecasters are integrative thinkers because they have multidisciplinary life experiences and skills. Okay, that's that's important. You, you can't integrate what you don't understand. It is, you don't have to be an expert, but you have to be able to uh, you know, have functional knowledge, shall we say, of many fields. So if you want to integrate economics, you have to at least understand significant amounts about economics, politics. If in Middle East, religion matters, you know, different kinds of Islam, so forth. In other regions, other things matter. Uh, you have to have that broad spectrum. Okay? Otherwise, it won't make any sense to you. It's interesting to me in, in reading some of your stuff. It seems like this is an effective method when it comes to supply chains, kind of explain now that you explain it to me it makes sense but kind of dig deep on that for me let me give you an example i'm going to actually use in uh, both of the books quite frankly they're coming out and that i've been talking about for a long time in uh, the early part of the 20th century the woodrow wilson the league of nations era we made a major change and that is we took the sovereignty rights of all kinds of non-state peoples tribal peoples and so forth away and said uh, only a government, a national government, a state can be sovereign. And we subsumed those rights. Okay. And so the, we created a 20th century world made up eventually of about 200 countries. And we pretended as that that's the reality. Okay. Well, starting about the 1950s, these groups fought back. And, and you have to remember, we had actually a treaty with the kingdom of Hawaii. We had treaties with all the Native American groups in the United States, so-called First Nations. That was a worldwide event. Well, in 2007, uh, the United Nations unanimously affirmed, all the countries affirmed uh, through a General Assembly vote, that uh, indigenous peoples have sovereignty rights, 
equal to states. In other words, they're just as sovereign as a people as, as a state. Well, up in Canada and, and also in North Dakota, you've had pipelines that were stopped because the, the native people there said, no, we're not going to let you through our territory or we object to this on, on religious grounds. It goes through an area that's of religious importance. Now imagine supply chains in a world like Africa where you've got, what, 42 countries south of the Sahara, give or take. I think I'm right on that. Uh, but literally 2,000 different ethnic groups down there. You've seen this with the Tuareg in Mali and Niger, where they blocked uranium mining there for a good long time. Uh, you've seen it in other places where literally multi-billion dollar operations have been held up uh, by these indigenous groups making a political claim uh, that this is ter their territory, their, their resource, therefore they have at least some rights, okay, to decide what happens. That has a huge supply chain impact that almost nobody thinks about. I mean, literally nobody thinks about it. There's very, very few people that think about this. Other supply chain issues would be, are we on friendly terms or not friendly terms with countries? For example, right now, uh, the debate is, should all of our pharmaceuticals be made in China? Probably not, okay? Uh, it's, it's less expensive. There's really no argument that they do a decent job at it, but that has become... Uh, under COVID, a, a, almost a domestic security issue, okay, and maybe a national security issue. I've always been fascinated by uh, s some of the computer parts uh, that go into uh, national security technology. is also made in China, right? Again, if you ever have any kind of a dispute, uh, you don't have control of that in-house. And so there's a debate going on about that. So again, here a supply chain issue is being hit by political considerations, uh, you know, societal considerations, and in, in this case, literally how the world was shaped and structured considerations, as well as can you get this resource from that country for any variety of other reasons, okay? Uh, right now we have you know, shipping uh, rates are gonna go up, I hope, because I bought a bunch of stock there, uh, because we reduced the number of ships uh, during the uh, post 2008, 2009 crisis. And when we have recovery, we're gonna see not enough ships to produce uh, transport. And so the shipping rates are going up. Literally, okay, supply chain issue. So you can think about this holistically uh, in terms of supply chain issues uh, in a lot of different ways. I mentioned a couple here, but you know, this can be political risk, it could be social risk, it could be infrastructure risk, it could be a whole lot of things. With regards, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and looking at some of your work, there's not holistic forecasting of if you and I talked back in March, you would have said A, B, and C would happen, but. Yeah. Looking at how different countries have responded, given your approach, all of a sudden it makes more sense. Am I am I correct? Sure. It, it's it, this is very preliminary. What happened was uh, I got the one book contract uh, last year, and I got the other book contract about a week ago. And both of them, as we were negotiating this thing, said, "Oh, by the way, we want you to say something about COVID." Okay, so uh, I am putting that into the, the, the book as, as we write it. So the research isn't done, okay? I wanna make sure that everyone understands this. But if you start thinking about how countries are going to react to any crisis, whether it be a pandemic or whether it be hurricanes or whatever, they can only use the institutions they've built, the legal infrastructure they've constructed, the experience they've had, uh, just like a human being, you or me, we have certain skills that we're good at and certain skills that we're not good at. Uh, you know, we're we're limited by how we react to a crisis by our internal cap uh, capacities and capabilities. And usually, 
we justify those on, on a country level that this is the right way to do it. So Turkey sees it as this is the right way to do it. Germany sees it as this is the right way to do it. Japan has a different way. The Americans, as we talked about, have a different way, which involves uh, you know, both federalism and lawsuits. And so where I'm going to be looking at this is how did the countries uh, differentially react uh, to COVID? And can that be a tool for forecasting next crisis. Now, the reason I think this is true is a colleague of mine, Ruben Gall, uh, Israeli, uh, he did some very nice work uh, where he was looking at Israeli response to intifada attacks, uh, the, the last intifada. And as we looked at, he's a psychologist, a very well-known one, but when he was looking at Israeli society response to this, you could actually begin to predict what the next response would be when the next attack happened, because you'd now built up this fund of, of background knowledge about this is how the Israelis do it. Now, the interesting part of this, to me anyway, is, you know, Israel has gotten used to attacks because of where they are in the neighborhood and so forth. Uh, Denmark or Norway hasn't. And so when you had like one political assassination in Norway, you know, that upset the country hugely, okay, and they, they still think about it, uh, whereas the Israelis, they just kind of fit it into their daily life and go about their business because this is not that unusual thing. Uh, in India, is another fairly good example, every time they have election, there's a high level of political violence that we would find completely unacceptable and probably threatening to the system, but the Indians just run with it because it's a normal part of their electoral process and is not going to overthrow the system. So there's a lot to look at here. And I, but I do think we can come up with a holistic assessment tool that will give some insight, maybe not perfect insight, but this is how this society is going to react to the next crisis of a pandemic type. And then therefore, hopefully, we should be able to build that into our thinking about, you know, what do we need uh, to, to address that. I haven't walked down that road yet, and I don't want to say I have. That's that's what I'm going to do in those those two books. Okay, those are that's where that's going. Do you find the audience for the, the idea of holistic forecasting is growing? Yeah, uh, and I'll, I'll give you, I've been uh, a little bragging, I'm sorry, but uh, I've been addressing Fortune 100 companies at mid-level to executive levels uh, for 30 years. I was the, one of the keynote speakers of an AT&T Forum Lucid as an example. Uh, I've done a lot of work with Exxon and a number of other companies like that. And uh, in my various talks, I was always kind of the odd man out until about three or four years ago when all of a sudden about a third of the uh, risk managers or the, uh, the chief financial officers or the CEOs were using the word integrative and holistic in their talks. Okay. And that made me feel better, but it was also a little bit unusual because I'm used to being the odd guy out. And now all of a sudden I'm becoming sort of mainstream and I'm not quite sure how to handle being mainstream. But I do think uh, particularly the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 concentrated an awful lot of minds about, on financial and banking systems about the need to integrate their insights across their areas of operation and business uh, to come to better forecasts. And I think that's what drove that. Uh, but you're also seeing that in other areas. I mean, not just that, uh, but in the actuarial community, financial community, risk management community, uh, they've been working with lately, the intelligence community before that. Yeah, uh, holistic forecasting and integrative thinking uh, have come to the fore. I, I wrote, I was asked to write an article uh, in a book on uh, fusion centers, which are used in law enforcement and intelligence and military venues heavily and uh, made some comments on that. So I have a, a chapter in there and a couple of chapters, again, this probably maybe eight years ago, in the Encyclopedia of U.S. Intelligence where I wrote a couple of things on that at their request. So, yeah, I, I would say compared to 20 years ago, 
big change. And I, I believe that started post, uh, you know, 2008 uh, in in large event in the private sector, uh, in the military and in intelligence. I think it started after 9-11, quite frankly. I think that was the big thing that concentrated their minds. I mean, the information that was there, nobody put it together right. I shouldn't say nobody. One guy did, but nobody listened. Yeah. And to, to wrap up, somebody that's listening to this, what would you say is the most important thing they should take away from the, about the concept of holistic forecasting if they want to learn more, build on it? Uh, whatever, whatever your field is, think about two or three fields that impact that and then read outside that field. For example, if you're a financial person, uh, you know that politics is going to impact it. You know that economics is going to impact it. You probably know technology is going to impact it. So those would be three relevant fields. If your major is marketing, then psychology would, would make sense, okay? Technology would make sense, and maybe another one. Uh, if your supply chain, uh, again, technology, information technology makes sense. Uh, political rules, but different rules about import-export uh, would make sense. Uh, law, in other words, regulations. Study those, right? And once you've got those three down to where you're comfortable with them, then add another three, <laughs> right? Okay, and, 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 and start with an area that you're familiar with. In other words, if you're an American, you know, the, the most close to us societies would be Australia, New Zealand, and Western Europe. Uh, you know, don't go doing something that's entirely foreign to you, uh, certain parts of Asia or, or so forth. Uh, if you're from Latin America or, or familiar with Latin America, start there. In other words, start with the familiar. Start with what's close to you because it'll make more sense to you. And then you can branch out if you wish to branch out later. I've been doing this to where I'm reasonably functional uh, across the major regions of the world. I'm, I'm not an expert in any of them, and I don't even want to be, but, you know, I sort of understand why it's happening this way in South Korea and why it's happening differently in Finland. Uh, but that, those are the two bits of advice I'd give. You know, start small, uh, learn to walk, uh, then jog and run. Does that make sense? It does, and thank you for your time. Okay, have a good one. Thank you much. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can hear another episode tomorrow night at 9.30 on KYW News Radio. Listen on 1060, the Radio.com app, or ask your smart speaker to play KYW News Radio.